Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting October 17th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, from people to chickens to yeast, we'll talk with Scientific American's news editor Phil Yam about people and animals and public health. And evolutionary biologist Sean Carroll discusses some fascinating research he just published that looks at how a single gene with two functions wound up as two genes with specialized functions. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First up, though, Phil Yam. We spoke in the library at Scientific American. Hey, Phil, how are you? Good, Steve. So you just got back from Europe. Where were you? I was in Salzburg attending the Salzburg Global Seminar on Animal and Public Health. Animal and Public Health. Yes. Basically, 75% of all emerging diseases come from animals. And the seminar, which brought together a a group of uh, diverse researchers, tried to look at what we can do to better contain or spot uh, potential outbreaks. Now, this is a particular interest of yours because you wrote a book about mad cow disease. Right. I wrote a book a few years ago about mad cow disease and prions in general. Although this meeting in particular focused, I think, more on influenza and viruses, the kinds of things that can happen when you bring together people, pigs, chickens, and other animals, um, human encroachment into the environment, uh, global food production, all these factors come together and create new risks that nobody had really thought about before. So what are some of those risks that nobody thought about? Well, the risk is really that how can we actually find out, discover some of these outbreaks and stop them before they happen? There's no good surveillance at this point uh, that applies to the the entire world. I mean, a lot of our food, as you know, comes from China. A lot of the uh, food industry has gone global. Um, It's hard to control food production and food quality in other parts of the world. So... The question then becomes, well, how, how do you actually install, install a surveillance system that applies to everyone equally? And it's easy to create enforcement or laws in the United States, for instance, in your own country. But when you start going, once you've gone global, it's a little tougher. So far, though, it, it really sounds like you're outlining the problem in more detail rather than really offering solutions well, other than take that into account. Right. I mean, they're, they're hard, it's hard to come up with a solution. This meeting really was trying to start a movement, and especially among the organizers who who really decided that they're really setting something up for the next generation. They want to push this into a direction. And the common theme of the meeting was convergence, convergence of governments, uh, veterinary science, uh, public health officials, uh, and food product, and the food producers to, to really come together and to figure out what's the best way to tackle this. So their vision statement ultimately boiled down to optimal global health, embracing the interdependence of human, animal, and the environment. So the, the question is, how do you get there? The, the group identified several strategies, including raising social awareness, a better education for physician, human physicians in particular who don't who in most cases don't have any veterinary science training at all. You raise an interesting point about uh, something that most people probably don't think about, but veterinarians have a really important role in human health. That's right. That's absolutely right. And one of the big problems cited at this meeting was that there's a lack of recognition among public health officials of how crucial veterinary science can be. Uh, re- several several of the participants said that you know basically veterinarians get you know play second fiddle, 
Uh, they're not as viewed as high on a totem pole and the social totem pole as human physicians and when it comes to public health. Uh, they don't get the kind of funding they need to do epidemiology. In Hong Kong, where there was the avian flu outbreak in 1997, now it's back to the status quo. No one has changed, even though back then it was really feared that avian flu could jump to humans. So things haven't changed, even though people kind of recognize that veterinary science really should play a much bigger role. I know that uh, when when West Nile first broke out here, it was the veterinary community, specifically Tracy McNamara over at the Bronx Zoo, the pathologist then at the Bronx Zoo, who really figured out what the disease entity was, and because they were seeing it in in birds while the medical community was seeing it in people. Right. So part of the goals of this seminar was to find ways to get the groups to communicate better, to find ways that uh, one group should be aware of what another group is doing. What else uh, did you come across at the meeting that uh, that struck you? What was interesting was that, to me, there's an assumption that a pandemic is going to occur, and throughout history we've seen cycles of pandemics. I mean, the most famous one is 1918, uh, global pandemic, but there were other smaller ones throughout the 50s and 60s. That, that was a flu pandemic. Yes, we're talking about influenza. Any thought that maybe the conditions in World War One worldwide were unique and that, you know, they obviously were part of why that pandemic got so big. But any any thinking that, you know, the trench warfare, the crowding, the uh, the amazing number of wounded, were those can- conditions that just combined for a unique overall condition that that really made that unusual and maybe we shouldn't worry so much about a gigantic pandemic again without a replication of that maybe so but in the 21st century i think the fear is that it will be worse because we have global travel airplanes uh people are going back and forth all the time we ship animals across nations uh so things move around very very fast now And once they get out, if you don't spot it in time, they get out and they can really take off. So I think the fear is now that we have the, we've laid the groundwork for a much, much faster acting pandemic than we had in 1918. Yeah. The, the fear starting about 20 years ago was somebody with Ebola in Africa gets on a plane. They get off a plane in Chicago. That actually happened once, I think. Right. But it, it didn't spread anywhere. And the fear was, you know, an Ebola. Uh, epidemic throughout the Midwest in, in a matter of days, but so far so good. So, I mean, I think that's one of the problems touched on at the seminar was that we have a lot of warnings about potential pandemics, uh, swine flu back in the 70s in this country, uh, avian flu, and there's the real threat of people becoming lackadaisical and not taking any of this seriously after a while. Um, for something like this, in terms of, you know, the, the nexus of animal and public health, a lot of ways I think the food industry should take the lead on this. So they're the ones with the money. They have a lot at stake. Uh, we had, there was a representative Cargill, uh, at the meeting and they seem to get it. But the other big food producers, it's not clear to me that they really understand that this is something that they need to worry about. I mean, they produce so much food overseas that if they're not taking it seriously and hoping that things remain the same, then I think they're setting themselves up for a real potential disaster. If they think it's expensive to try to prevent it, wait till they pay for dealing with it when it happens. Right. I actually have some numbers here. Um, For instance, SARS resulted in a thousand deaths and led to 
500 US 500 billion US dollars in economic loss. Um, avian flu outbreak, uh, if it jumps to humans, is is estimated to cost a trillion dollars in in economic loss. So we're talking some real numbers here. That when things, if things actually hit the fan, we're, it's going to we're going to be paying through the nose. Sure, and and I mean, even if the disease never jumps to humans, if you have a a global pandemic just affecting poultry. That's hundreds of billions of dollars in economic losses. Absolutely, I mean, chickens are a huge food source throughout the world, and to have those animals, you know, devastated, and people then probably being afraid to even eat them, it would just cause economic chaos. Well, thanks a lot, Phil. Well, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. For more on the Salzburg Global Seminar on Animal and Public Health, go to tinyurl.com/slash-two-rb. 37V. Now it's time to play totally bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one: An American shared the Nobel Peace Prize awarded last week. Story two: A new syndrome is people imagining that their cell phones or Blackberries are vibrating in their pockets. Story three: In a related story, a study found that strippers who were ovulating got a lot more tip money than those in other points in their menstrual cycles. And story four: Bears aren't the only large mammals that love honey. Elephants have been found raiding beehives to get at the sticky sweet stuff. We'll be back with the answer, but first, ever wonder about where all your genes came from, other than mom and dad? In addition to random mutations of existing genes, every once in a while, entire genes, even entire genomes, get accidentally duplicated, and all of a sudden, a new gene or a whole new set of genes is available for evolution to work on. University of Wisconsin evolutionary biologist Sean Carroll just published a paper that tracks how one gene with two functions became two genes with one function each. To find out more, I called Carroll Saturday at his home in Madison, Wisconsin. Professor Carroll, good to talk to you today. Nice to talk to you, Steve. So you have this paper in the most recent issue of Nature. It's a really fascinating look at sort of the history of the evolution of a particular. Gene or set of genes, and、uh, you did the work in yeast. Let's talk about yeast first for a second. What's、uh, what's so great about working with yeast? Well, natural selection works on very tiny increments of differences in performance between organisms, and to measure those differences requires a whole lot of sample size. So, if I were to try to do this experiment with elephants. Or even fruit flies, I would need enormous numbers of animals and enormous numbers of animal counters and a tremendous amount of money. But to do this experiment in yeast, because we can grow billions and billions of yeast overnight, we can measure very small differences in in strains of yeast that differ by very small genetic changes. We can measure those differences essentially overnight, and that. Allows us to then understand the process of natural selection in depth, you know, and, and with great power,、uh, but at much more affordable pace and, and over a time span much more compatible with a professor's career. Right. I mean, obviously, you're not going to do the work in elephants, 
but uh, even fruit flies, you'd, you'd need um, a lot more area to store your samples, and the generation times are a lot longer, even working with something that has generation times on the order of months, right? Yeah, I, I, th- I think I figured that we would probably need about a football stadium full of fruit flies to do this experiment. Um, so I think uh, that's, that's a little too many to well, count. Well, you could have had that last Sunday after Illinois beat Wisconsin, but... Thanks very much for that one. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you're doing the work in yeast, and you're looking at this particular gene construct and an ancestral version of it. Why don't you give us the, the whole background right. here? So, and I'll just say a little more about, about also why yeast, which is over the decades, yeast molecular biologists have devised so many powerful tools that allow you to make very precise changes in yeast in their DNA. Exquisite control where we can, you can change a single base that you want in a particular place. You can put a whole gene in, take a whole gene out, swap genes, etc. So what we did is we wanted to ask what happened in the history of a pair of genes. In regular old brewers and bakers yeast that's used these days, um, there are a series of genes that help it manage a particular nutrient. And one pair of genes we know from having the genome sequences of a lot of yeast, one pair of genes evolved from a single gene uh, about 100 million years ago in, in yeast history. And those two genes today carry out fairly specialized roles in the use of this particular nutrient, but they were together encoded in the same gene. These two functions were, car- were encoded together in the same gene in the ancestor. And what we wanted to figure out was exactly how these evolutionary changes have happened as one gene became two. Let's talk for just a second. Now, these two genes... Uh, just for anybody keeping score at home, they're, they're called GAL1 and GAL3. That's right. And they're involved in the, uh, the use of the sugar galactose. Right. And they are, to this day, they're about three quarters identical with each other. That's right. And, and one of the proteins, GAL1, is an enzyme. And it sort of harvests the, the galactose in a way that it can, it modifies it in a way that can be used for energy. And the other protein, GAL3, is a regulatory protein. It's involved in turning the levels of the enzyme, the production of the enzyme, way up in the presence of galactose. So yeast, uh, and true of most microbes, they don't want to waste energy making proteins they don't need. So it's only in the presence of galactose that this, all this machinery is kicked into high gear. Okay, so the GAL3 is a sensor that lets the, uh, lets the, the system know that it should turn up the production of the protein that GAL1 codes for. That's right. And in the ancestor, these two functions were together in, in one protein. So the protein was, was bifunctional, it, and it was both a sensor and an enzyme. But that's somewhat of a constraint, because it could be that certain mutations that could make it a better sensor or could make it a better enzyme might make it a worse enzyme or a worse sensor, and you understand vice versa. Mm-hmm. After the gene was duplicated, and I'll just mention that duplications take place all the time, they're, they're a common sort of genetic accident, but after the genes were duplicated, now there was the opportunity to divide the labor that was once served by a single gene, now divide that labor into two genes. And what's happened is, a series of mutations have taken place that have 
optimized each role. The, the sensor, the regulatory sensor role of GAL3 and the enzymatic converting role of, of GAL1. And what we did is in order to figure all this out, sort of trace the path of evolution, we did a whole bunch of sort of swapping experiments where we swapped GAL1 for GAL3 and we swapped the ancestral protein type of protein in for GAL1 or for GAL3 and we even swapped the GAL1 and GAL3 in for the ancestral protein in another yeast that um, is, uh, did not have the duplication take place. And from this whole series of experiments, we, we really expected to find out pretty much how the proteins had changed. And the surprise was that most of the adaptive change that had taken place wasn't in the proteins. It was in how the two genes were regulated. So explain that. It wasn't in the actual sequences of the DNA that would code for the finished protein product. Right. The, the changes were in those other sequences that determine how, the, how those genes get expressed, when they get turned on and off, and in, in, in what numbers. That's right. And so um, we were expecting that, that pretty much you explain the difference between these two, these two proteins actually in the protein sequence. And some changes have taken place there. So, for example, the GAL3 protein no longer has any enzyme activity. So that's fallen away over time. But that's no great surprise. What we were surprised to find out was that the real differences we could detect in terms of when we did these swap experiments and say, you know, which yeast sort of outperforms the other, what we learned was that the GAL1 gene, that the part, the, the DNA sequence that's outside of the GAL1 gene and acts as a switch to turn up or turn down GAL1 expression, that had evolved considerably from the ancestral situation. And same for the GAL3. And that what had happened was that each function had been optimized, that GAL3 had sort of been tuned to be sort of a loosely regulated, kind of available anytime sensor of galactose. And GAL1 had evolved to be an incredibly tightly regulated, in fact, the most tightly regulated gene we know of in yeast, um, that is it, it induced a thousandfold uh, in the presence of galactose, but sort of tightly shut off in its absence. And those, the mutations that made these two genes regulated differently, um, they, we gathered various sorts of hints that those mutations couldn't have happened with just a single gene. That when a single gene existed in the ancestor, mutations that would have made for higher levels of enzyme expression would have messed up the sensor function. Right, so they won't be selected for those mutations. That's right. So what this shows is it sort of gives us a window to say, well, one way that gene duplication allows novelty or, or specialization or adaptation is by having more genetic parts to work with. Each part can be optimized and specialized in a way that if you just have one part, you can't do it. So you, you also um, compared it to uh, instead of having one guy trying to do a whole bunch of different jobs, you've created an assembly line with specialization. That's right. That's right. So this gene duplication business is so interesting and it's, it's such, uh, it has such profound importance in evolution and researchers realize that. But I don't think 
that news has really gotten out to the general public in a lot of ways, that in the modern evolutionary theory playbook, gene duplication has a really big role. Right. I think, you know, biologists have been onto this for, for, for several decades, and, you know, we've been looking at the signatures, sort of the outcome of these duplication events. You know, when we look at human genes and, uh, you know, genes of lots of other uh, organisms that are important to us, you know, medically or agriculturally, things like that. Um, but really teasing apart sort of the step-by-step process of how one gene becomes two different genes, um, that's been hard to do experimentally. I mean, we, as I said, we, we more sort of get a snapshot of, of what happens long after the duplication event, but not much of sort of the, the movie of the, of the step-by-step um, changes that are taking place. But you're absolutely right. The importance of gene duplication, um, most, uh, when I say most, it's a rough number, um, but a very large number of the genes that carry out functions in our bodies are parts of families of genes, members of families of genes that have expanded by gene duplication. So the things that carry oxygen in our bloodstream or that fight off invaders in our, by our immune system or allow us to see in full color, all these are members of gene families where the expanding number of genes has broadened the total capability of that type of protein. It's really interesting. And one of the things you point out in the Nature paper is that when gene, when gene duplication was first, uh, was first noticed and, and, uh, realized to be important, most researchers thought that what it did was give you one copy of the gene that could continue performing its original important function and another copy that, that natural selection could then experiment with to find a new function. But in your paper, you talk about the fact that it might be the case that both genes wander off to find new functions. That's right. And and I, we're just understanding that there's a lot more trajectories open. So, yeah, sort of the long-standing model um, was was just as you said, that you sort of would keep one gene to, to do all the old jobs and play with the new gene. But it turns out, and we're appreciating a lot more, there, there are many more outcomes possible than that. In fact, one of the most common outcomes uh, now appreciated about gene duplication it's a little bit disappointing, which is really just the old job gets done by two genes. So they really just share the old job. It's like they've got, now you've got two lazy workers instead of one really efficient one. So it can go a different direction. Um, uh, this is not an example of that. This is an example where, where each function you know, became optimized. But there are ways, there are reasons why um, gene duplication can also create nothing new whatsoever. Um, so there's, there's, there are some nuances to the whole process. Of course, we should also probably keep in mind that those, uh, those two lazy genes that are both doing the same job are in the particular little piece of time that we're looking at them in. in That's the, right. In the future, some, some environmental change could happen where you do suddenly start saving mutations to one or the other, and they do wind up going off in different directions. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Excellent point. It's still material that natural selection can work with in the future. And, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, there, there are ways for, for genes to, to acquire new functions long after they've been duplicated. It's really, I think it's the most interesting stuff in the world. Uh, I, hope, I hope our listeners have too. And I thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Steve. Sean Carroll's paper appeared in the October 11th issue of the journal Nature. His co-author is Chris Hittinger, and the article is called Gene Duplication and the Adaptive Evolution of a Classic Genetic Switch. (laughs) 
Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one: An American shared the Nobel Peace Prize. Story two: People often only imagine that their electronic device is vibrating. Story three: Ovulating strippers get bigger tips. And story four: Elephants are raiding beehives for honey. Times up. Story one is true. American Al Gore did indeed share the Nobel Peace Prize awarded last week. Nevertheless, the reaction by some parties in the U.S. to Gore's Nobel Prize was less than enthusiastic. One would have thought they would be proud that one of their countrymen was given such a prestigious award. For more, check out the blog at blog.siam.com and the article in the August issue of Scientific American magazine called "The Physical Science Behind Climate Change." Story two is true. More people are reporting the sensation that their phone or BlackBerry is vibrating when, in fact, it isn't. I know this actually happens to me fairly regularly. The sensation has been dubbed ringsiety or faux alarm. That's f a u x c e l l a r m. An Associated Press article noted that Dilbert's Scott Adams is also regularly victimized. When it happens, he said he thinks, "Ooh, it's an email with good news," but he says, "So far, the only good news is that my pocket is vibrating, and that's okay because it gives me hope that the condition might spread to the rest of my pants." And story three is true: strippers who were ovulating got bigger tips, according to a study out of the University of New Mexico that was published in the journal Evolution and Human Behavior. For more info, check out the feature News Bites of the Week. Week on our website, all of which means that story four about elephants raiding beehives is totally bogus. Because in fact, one good way to keep your village elephant-free is to keep bees. Elephants are afraid of the little buzzers. For more, check out the October sixteenth episode of the Daily Siam podcast, Sixty Second Science. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. Check out numerous features at our website, including Weird Science, the Photo Gallery, and the latest science news, all at www.siam.com. And you can write to us at podcast@siam.com. For Science Talk, the Weekly Podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.